0: Around four trillion dollars in ETF investments in the U.S. About five to six trillion globally. Uh, let's get a look at why our next guest sees ETFs maybe becoming a ten trillion dollar market, or even more, in the next five years. Ed Rosenberg. Ed Rosenberg, let me say that again. He's back with us. Head of ETFs
1: Rosenberg.
0: (laughs) Sorry. It's the
1: Irish pronunciation.
0: (laughs) Okay, It's fun. You know, sometimes things go astray. (laughs) Ed Rosenberg, head of ETFs at American Century Investments, normally based in Kansas City, Missouri, or Missouri, depending on how you want to say it. He's in our uh, Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. I'm going to get killed. I can't get these names out, man. Great to have you with us. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. Um, nice to have you back with us. So $10 trillion, so you're talking about a doubling of the market.
2: You are. I mean, in the next five years, there's a lot of changes the industry going to go through, and I think you're going to see growth exponentially grow from that point forward. And why? What's, what's the catalyst here? So if you start off, the Presidian acceptance so far from the SEC has – now, obviously, it's not live yet because there's paperwork that has to be filed, but that is a new type of ETF. And when you think of a semi-transparent ETF that doesn't exist today – It allows you to do so much in the industry that you can't do today. Think of replicating an exact mutual fund that's concentrated, providing true alpha that just doesn't exist today, that all of a sudden you can have, and it becomes a
1: real threat or target to mutual fund assets as we see them today. And help me understand what semi-transparent active ETF means. So...
0: See, they're transparent or it's not. Forgive well, me. <laughs> so think
1: of it this way, right? With with the Presidian model,
2: if you publish your holdings quarterly, it's like a mutual fund. You're going to be okay. able to see the holdings quarterly going backwards. Um, and then there's going to be characteristics potentially published around that so that firms have the ability to trade on them, right? And quote them because they have to be able to be bought and sold on the secondary market using today's mechanisms through market makers and through the exchanges today.
1: But full transparency would mean I could see it any minute of any trading day. Correct.
2: So think of a, a totally a concentrated portfolio, 30 holdings. Apple's your largest holding. Mm-hmm. If you couldn't sell all that in one day, right? and I'm a market maker, I'm just looking at it, you see it go from 3.5% to 275 to 2. Could you start front running because you know the portfolio manager is getting out? In a semi-transparent portfolio, you don't get the information every day. So you can't see it. And so the portfolio manager can put his true alpha and his best IP out there and see it. Now, remember, there's other portfolios that could be coming out. They're called proxy baskets. So those will be more transparent because you'll have some type of substitute view into the portfolio of what they do.
0: You know, we had an interesting story um, on Friday by Rachel Evans. In fact, it was among the most read on the Bloomberg terminal. And and it had to do with... um, ETF liquidities, if Mm -hmm. we hit, or liquidity, I should say, if we hit get into some kind of crisis mode. And it talked about how a lot of asset managers were relying on ETFs as cash equivalents, but they're not cash. It's not cash. So I do wonder if we have yet to understand, with so much money going into ETFs at this point, we have yet to really understand how ETFs will function or not in a crisis.
2: Well, we have seen how they functioned in some crises in the past, right? We've had market downturns significant in like 2008, and we've had other periods of where they've been functionally, right, the underlying securities weren't able to trade or function, and yet they still performed fine. So ETFs tend to be price discovery in those situations. And if you think of how ETFs work today, when you say cash equivalents, there's only a few of those ETFs that are used like that today. So... You, If you even break up the market into several segments, you'll see one of the segments is about, call it 8% of all the ETFs, make up 90% of all the volume across the exchanges for ETFs. Right, we know that. Because it's specific ETFs. And those, a lot of those are... You know, a basic index, top 500 or top 1,000. And those are the ones that you would consider quote-unquote cash equivalents in some ways because they're used as hedging vehicles and others.
0: This said about half the institutions that own bond ETFs are using them for cash management. This was a survey done by Greenwich Associates. And they
2: could because there's a lot of those short-term ETFs. But the other thing to remember is there was a study done, I'm trying to remember which firm did it a few years ago, that said roughly 80 to 90 percent of all volume in the fixed income ETFs does not lead to a creation or redemption at all. So you only have 10 to 20% of the volume that could cause a creation or redemption. So if everybody sold all in one day, it wouldn't be that much of a redemption and that much of a strain. But we really haven't gone market. into
0: crisis mode. If you think about ETFs ballooning in terms of assets, mm-hmm. it's really been post-financial crisis. Mm-hmm. We've really seen the balloon uh, or ballooning in assets, right? So we don't yeah. yet really know.
2: We don't. But what you would say is is based on the pattern that we've seen, is as long as the, the the expectation is of clients is to be worried, right? Right. If you believe the expectation is it's going to be as liquid as this individual stock, that's not true. It's as liquid as the underlying securities. So if that underlying market tightens, those securities will tighten. Right. In 08, just to go back to then, I remember there were tons of different bonds that didn't trade that were in ETFs, but the ETFs still traded.
1: And so getting to $10 trillion or or beyond, uh, what could get in the way of that? What, what could slow that down or stop it? I mean,
2: I, it's really hard to see what could stop it unless there's a revival in mutual fund assets going into active. That's the only thing I could see that could stop it because the everyone seems to be switching. Now, it doesn't mean everybody. I'm just broadening. Is switching to ETFs from mutual funds when originally it started out as individual stocks. Right from '08 forward, it was individual stocks, which is why you saw the volume drop. And ETF volume go up to roughly about 28% every day now. And so I think what you need to see is an adoption of mutual funds again.
0: So, okay, so it's interesting. So these types of semi-transparent active ETFs, what are we seeing in terms of creation of them, the, the amount that are coming out? So
2: there's nothing yet. yet. Right? They're not live. Uh, we have filed our paperwork. Okay. So the, at this moment, our timeline puts us in late fourth quarter, early first quarter next year to launch. Right. And it'll be the first of its kind. There are a bunch of others by other providers in the proxy basket state, which would be, include places like NYSE or Fidelity or T. Price that have filed. Right. When they come out, there'll be another version of this. And so you're going to see, my, my assumption and it's a guess is they'll all roughly come out around the same time. Even though those baskets or those models haven't been approved yet by the yeah. SEC, right. I don't think it's that far in the distance right. where they'll be
1: approved. A lot of fun times coming in the in the uh, world of ETFs. To grow. All right, Ed Rosenberg, head of exchange traded funds, we call them ETFs, American Century Investments. He's based out in Kansas City, Missouri, but here with us in New York City today. Great to have you back. Thanks.
0: Yeah, nice to see you. We're top- So this is such a timely conversation, considering what we just heard from Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who said the Trump administration very serious uh, or or has very serious concerns about Facebook's proposed cryptocurrency. So let's get into uh, a story written by our own Andy Brown, Bloomberg New Economy editorial director. Andy joining us on the phone in New York. You know, Andy, I feel like when Facebook came out, it was a shot across the cryptocurrency world's bow recently with the introduction of its own digital coin. Uh, We're talking about Libra. Everyone watching, and that includes China. You write about that. China not as worried, though, about the world of cryptocurrencies?
3: Yeah, I mean, it seems that so many regulators around the world are freaked out by the potential of Libra. Um, but the Chinese actually seem to be taking it in their stride. Um, and, and a couple of reasons for this. I mean, the first thing to point out is that China, throughout its history, um, has been at the forefront of financial innovation. Um, you know, it was the first civilization in the world to issue paper notes. Um, it was called flying money. You know, people noticed that um, as opposed to gold or silver or uh, copper, it, would, it could um, flutter away on a breeze. And this was in the 10th century. Um, so, so China is not at all afraid of financial uh, innovation.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting, too. I mean, as Carol said, on a day where we have the U.S. government coming out very strongly, we have the president uh, tweeting about it. So how much of an advantage does this potentially give the Chinese? We heard Vincent Signorella talk about a similar situation, really, with 5G. I mean, we're seeing this across a number of different uh, areas here, it feels like.
3: Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, don't forget, um, the Chinese are working on their own cryptocurrency, their own sovereign cryptocurrency. Right. And what people are saying is that the Facebook push for Libra could actually encourage China to speed up their development. And some people even say that, you know, the technical developments, conceptual um, ideas around Libra could actually influence the final shape of China's own currency um so rather than seeing it as a as a challenge the chinese are seeing this as a spur to action yeah how much
0: of this andy is that chinese and the chinese government being also anti the us dollar and just tired of the us dollar being the dominating com- currency
3: yeah, well, there's, there's, there's definitely that to it. Look, I mean, it's not as though they don't have the f- similar concerns to regulators all over the world. I mean, they're worried about money laundering. They're worried about funding terrorism. This thing, Libra, is going to be based in Geneva. So who is going to regulate this currency? But you, you'll hear the Chinese officials, um, you know, publicly worry about all of these things. But they also see some very significant positives. And one of the positives certainly is the role that cryptocurrencies could play um, in eroding the primacy or the dominance of the U.S. dollar. Mm. Um, I mean, this this frustrates the Chinese enormously. What they noticed was that, you know, in 2008, during the global financial crisis, which was made in America, where did all the money go? Well, it went to the, the eye of the storm. I mean, it all flooded to... To the United States, and you know the reason for that, of course, is ultimately when push comes to shove, people trust America and the institutions and the Fed, you know, that back the dollar, and the world just does not have a similar level of confidence in the RMB. So they've been very frustrated in trying to internationalize the RMB. And they see at least at the margins, these cryptocurrencies, like the one that uh, Facebook is proposing, backed by a basket of currencies with no single currency dominating. Um, and they see at the margins a, a, a role for this, you know, in expanding the, the RMB and, you know, its ability to influence trade and investment around the world.
1: Well, and one of the things you point out in your piece, Andy, that I find fascinating is this notion that while there's so much talk of digital currencies and cryptocurrencies empowering individuals, this could be a very powerful state tool ultimately when it comes to uh, China, especially and and the United States for that matter. But I I hadn't really thought of that twist here.
3: Yeah, well, so... You know, Facebook talks about um, Libra in glowing terms, about its ability to, um, you know, take the friction out of cross-border transactions um, and to empower uh, particularly, you know, the poor and destitute around the world, bring them into the global financial system. But in fact, um, it empowers, as you say, uh, it empowers the state. And China likes this. So, yeah. you know, in, in in the U.S., it was li- libertarians are freaking out about the prospect of Facebook, which already has been, you know, using and abusing the data of its two billion or so users, um, you know, with this data potentially influencing the last election in the U.S. And now, oh, my goodness, they're going to get hold of everybody's financial data, too. Um, The Chinese don't really have these kinds of privacy concerns. In fact, to an authoritarian regime like the regime in China, it's seen as a real advantage. Um, You know, okay, you can use it to monitor corrupt officials and to crack down on telephone food. But you can also use this to monitor the financial uh, activities, the source of funds for human rights groups, social activists and so on.
0: Yeah, I do wonder, you know, Andy, I think about this a lot that as the US pushes back on being kind of a participant in the global world, I do see, you know, we continue to see China taking steps. And this might be an opportunity if the US is slowing down its moves or work in the global digital currency world, you know, um, I do wonder, does China just step right in and they become kind of one of the leaders in developing this market?
3: Well, they 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 could they could well be, um, you know, their their plans. We haven't actually heard too much about their plans. They've been mm. keeping it under wraps. Uh, but now that Facebook has gone, and by the way, Facebook of course is banned in 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 China, so Libra is not going to go anywhere uh, in 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 China. Um, but nevertheless, you know, um, uh, you, we're starting to hear lots of talk from Chinese regulators about the potential. Um, for cryptocurrencies. Um, so, yeah, we, we could end up with, with China yet again, you know, sort of uh, um, uh, and, and, and sort of in historical terms, they say this is, it has always been the case, but yet again at the forefront of fintech.
1: And so, Andy, while we have you, we can't let you go without talking a little bit of Trump, Xi, U.S.-China trade, the latest and greatest. I believe you had the president of the United States saying he still considers President Xi a friend, maybe not so close uh, as they were. Read the tea leaves for us. Where are we in that relationship?
3: Yeah, the, the you, you have to take all of this, my best friend, uh, type of rhetoric with, with a pinch of salt. I yes, the, 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 the White probably
1: House, more than a pinch, right?
3: <laughs> more, more than. But the, the White House strategy all along has been uh, right from the beginning, um, you know, Trump needs to have a good personal working relationship with Xi, and then sort of under, underneath that, um, the, the trade negotiators can – uh, you know can 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 work out uh, deals which are going to be extremely difficult, um, but they needed something to hold the relationship together right at the top, and so they 've been talking up this this friendship but of course it, i mean it 's a friendship of convenience
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, and frankly it 's not going to uh, it 's not going to get it 's not going to help resolve these really fundamental differences now between the u s and China. And, you know, two of the two among them, first of all, uh, the Chinese are demanding that the U.S. remove the tariffs uh, on, you know, $200 billion of Chinese goods before they'll start talking. It's, it is very uncertain uh, that the U.S. will ever agree to that. Um, you know, and secondly, they want this reprieve uh, for Huawei. And I'm not sure at all that they're going to be satisfied with this kind of halfway compromise, where uh, it seems like you know the U.S. will allow certain types of non-sensitive, you know, technology to flow to to Huawei, um, you know, but block the the really important stuff, including semiconductors.
0: Well, and it's interesting too, right? Go back to President Trump's tweet, what about eight hours ago, or, you know, where he. He talked about China's second quarter growth, slows it's been in more than 27 years, and he talks about some other things, about the tariffs and so on and so forth, and he says this is why China wants to make a deal and that, uh, with the U.S., and wishes it had not broken the original deal in the first place. It's just fascinating and interesting, you know, Andy, to continue to see um, the president use Twitter um, with the Chinese, and I, I can't help but wonder if that just doesn't create more problems by him being so public
3: it does and 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 the other problem, of course, is uh, you know are the Chinese going to trust uh, ultimately any deal that uh, that the u s mm-hmm. that they do with the u s with a president that is able to change his mind and change policy literally with a single tweet yeah yeah, yeah.
1: pretty amazing all right, Andy Brown leader the fearless leader i think of the bloomberg new economy uh and the producer of the bloomberg new economy forum always good to check in with you so timely as we said given everything that's going on with crypto and libra etc
0: I work if you can get it and if you get it a little Ella Fitzgerald you for you. Um, I don't know if it's nice work if you can get it. That's not how some Instacart uh, workers may feel. Uh, the grocery delivery app is apparently hounding its own workers to take jobs that aren't worth their time and effort. So let's find out exactly what's going on. Let's bring in Josh Idelson, labor reporter at Bloomberg News. He's in our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Also with us, Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio in New York. Hey, Josh, uh, interesting story. What's going on at in Instacart?
5: Thanks for having me. I talked to dozens of people who work for Instacart who say, while well, the company presents work there as a flexible opportunity for so-called independent contractors, that the reality is a tremendous amount of pressure to take on tasks that the company wants you to, even if they don't look appealing to you. And they describe tactics that range from four minutes of sonar pinging that I, your phone will make. I think
4: you make, can, might be able
5: to call that hell. Yeah,
3: <laughs> ping. Brutal. Ping. Yeah. Ping. Keep and you
5: church. were just listening to Joel do it for a few seconds there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Four minutes of it. Yeah, what, and four minutes what, of what Joel doing that would be a lot. Yeah, exactly.
1: uh, Contractors, not employees, right? What do these contractors say that they do when that happens? So
5: people have described turning off their phones even to get away from this sound. But what happens repeatedly, according to workers, is that they get pushed over the edge into just accepting the job. Picture on your phone, there's a bright accept all caps button with just a tap, not a slide, just a tap. You can accept the job, but there's no decline button. And so that pinging is going to continue for four minutes if you don't accept the job. And workers and uh, behavioral economists that I talk to say, this is not an accident. This is something that is creating pressure on you to say yes by making it a a real pain to say no. And that's on top of all kinds of other incentives, such as creating a system for getting jobs where in order to get substantial work, workers say they have to have a preferential status for picking hours, and in order to have that status to get hours, you need to already have a lot of hours you've done, and if you're rejecting jobs, you can get kicked off for the rest of your time for the day on the platform. Can
0: I just say, though, isn't it just providing more transparency to kind of how the world works really i mean doesn't that kind of happen in any company i'm not i'm not <laughs> taking their side but, but i do you think know what that's one of the
1: issues though right and josh you can address this i mean this gets into this idea of if they're not employees You know, like, if our bosses need to get in touch with us and they want to get in touch with us, they're going to do it. This, I mean, this is sort of separating employees, contractors, the gig economy, right? I mean, this is one of the fundamental kind of debates that we're having. Or am I missing something, Josh?
5: No, you're not. Millions of people have jobs where they are expected to be at a certain place at a certain time and do whatever they're told to do and are subject to all kinds of detailed requirements, but are considered employees under U.S. and state law and, Being an employee comes with a whole suite of protections from collective bargaining rights to protection from sexual harassment to minimum wage and overtime. Contractors do not have the same protections, and contractors under federal and state law are not supposed to be subject to the degree of control by their boss that employees are. And so you have some experts saying this and other companies are trying to have their cake and eat it too.
1: So, Josh, when you went to Instacart for comment, what what kind of feedback did you get from them?
5: Instacart says that it is trying to provide the best possible experience for workers and that the jobs are flexible and that some workers appreciate that there are multiple ways to get work on the platform now. And Instacart says that those four minutes give people time to think and consider the information presented about whether this batch of work is going to be good for them or not. Keep in mind, though, you're not required to wait four minutes
1: if you want to press yes, that you'll accept the job. I do wonder, too, Josh, as you look at a company like this, this is a company that's poised to go public. How much are investors concerned about sort of worker treatment and, and all of those issues right now?
5: Well, we know that it is an issue, as we've seen in the Uber and Lyft filings, for example. It's an issue for people potentially taking a stake in the company, whether these companies are going to have major liability for allegedly failing to comply with laws about what the difference is between an employee and a contractor. And particularly in California, where the state Supreme Court last year said – if you're doing work that is not outside the usual course of the company's business, you are not someone who's a contractor. It's an issue of great concern for these companies and their investors whether they can continue to use the business model that they have
1: been. And that's the bigger question, I think, right? And and I think we always lean into this strategy angle where we can. And this is like this little loophole in strategy of like how technology can actually become this overbearing boss and taking advantage of workers who who are workers yeah. not employees right and and that's fascinating insight Josh Josh Idelson is a labor reporter one of our best doing some very important work here on the gig economy. It really has a huge effect. And I know, uh, Joel, you guys have focused a lot about this uh, in the magazine, and rightly so. It's a big but question. It,
0: right. It sparks a lot of conversations about, you know, f- full-time employee or part-time employee. I mean, the economy has changed dramatically. All right. You are listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Our thanks to Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, And as uh, Jason mentioned, Josh Idelson, labor reporter, Bloomberg News. Catch that story at BloombergBusinessWeek.com and on the Bloomberg terminal and in the magazine. This is Bloomberg.
1: I'm driving in my car. i turn on the radio. Hey, How
2: about you let me drive?
1: Oh, no. No, no, no.
4: Who's gonna
1: drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Smith made. I want to drive. Just drive,
5: say it's crazy. Just drive baby. Just
3: drive me crazy. It's the question that drives us.
5: Drive. is the
3: drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: Yes, indeed, it is time for the drive to the close. Our next guest says recession. Mm, Don't worry. Trade war. Mm, Don't worry about that too much either. Let's get to Abe Despande. He's founder and chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors. He's back with us uh, today joining us on the phone in New York. Abe, good to have you here with us. I do feel like we are at a point in the market and really global economic environment, we're not quite sure what comes next. Um, how do you see it?
4: Hey, Carol, thanks for having me on. Yeah, um, yeah I think that uh, we've got a uh, a nice little kind of quiet zone here. I mean today was quiet or boring, however you want to call it that but hmm. I mean, um, you know we do have a, a kind of a period where interest rate exposure is probably best you know shortened. Um, you've got excitement when it comes to gold, potentially, foreign currencies. And uh, what's new and different now versus the last couple of years is that uh, the, Europe- the Eurozone is actually starting to show some signs of uh, life. And I think that's going to be kind of a surprise for people. And it's going to happen, looks like, at a surprising time of the year, which is the summer when no one's right. actually paying attention. Um, so yeah, we. I'm, I'm not saying don't worry about anything. Of course, that's a you know it's a little bit of hyperbole. But you know, I, it, for the first time in a long time, as opposed to the horror show that Europe has been, um, things are actually looking pretty good for international markets, led by Europe.
1: And what? And so, talk a little bit more about where those signs of life are emanating from Abhay. Like what? What do? Where are people? Uh, seeing the optimism that's – or, or where, what are they seeing that's giving them well, yeah, optimism sure, to buy? Sure.
4: I mean, I think – uh, so, so I'm – I think I, I see green shoots. So it's kind of
1: hmm.
4: early to say that, hey, everyone sees this. I think that um, there are some early warning uh, or, I guess, uh, uh, green shoots, and some of those uh, indicators include like PMIs coming out of France. Uh, there's a bit of a uh, dark cloud, which is manufacturing, that is still sort of uh, dampening – I think visually, what it looks like, the recovery looks like in Europe, because so much of Europe is really manufacturing oriented. Um, so that that is still kind of there, but uh, the, well, unbeknownst to most, it looks like domestic uh, consumption is starting to recover, and that's kind of interesting. You see it in the numbers. You know, statements like uh, the CEO of LVMH not too long, a couple months ago. You know, they're kind of surprised themselves about how how strong the economies are locally, domestic economies are. Um, even in China, which is you know you've seen seen a lot of the headlines are about about how weak things are there and how it's you know multi-decade low low in growth. But actually, if you separate manufacturing from do- local domestic consumption, uh, uh, pe- people are spending money. People are you know there's there's no sign of a, like a huge global recession around the corner. Uh, and that is, I think that's that's been the big weight on multiples uh, for international but- markets in particular. And there's just still no sign of that. In fact, you're starting to see beginning stages of recovery in Europe in places that you wouldn't expect it. So, yeah, so I'm not saying, yeah, hey, just, you know, buy with no abandon. But um, things are not as bad as what, what what it seems.
0: But, Abe, then why does it feel like so many global central banks are opting for an easier monetary Situation or standards yeah, because they
4: are all, all extremely focused on the manufacturing side of the economy, and like so in certain countries like the United States, for instance, manufacturing exports it 's a very small percentage of the total, but you know they they uh, they demand big headlines and um, so the i think the the weight of the evidence is that things are okay, but the weight of media evidence is that you know because of the over over focus on on, on manufacturing is that things are not as good as they could be. And so I think there's this continued uh, fear of deflation. You know, all these big-picture problems that central banks are really trying to solve for in order to preserve their independence, because increasingly each crisis that we have uh, lessens the... Or shortens the road that these these guys have independence anymore, hmm. and so they're having to become more and more proactive. So the Federal Reserve is going to start cutting rates this month, in the midst of an expansion, that doesn't happen very often. No. I think it shows. I think it shows an insecurity, and uh, regardless, though our job as investors, as portfolio managers, looking out for our clients at Centerstone or wherever, you know, we have to deal with the environment that's given to us, and in that environment if the central banks are going to uh, ease during a period of strength or at least of moderation and growth but not a recession, uh, that's actually good for stocks.
1: Right. All right, so tell us about a couple names uh, that you're looking at because in some of the notes you sent over, I have to say not household names uh, necessarily, which is what we like. Tell us what you're looking at.
4: Yeah, uh, so I, I probably sent you all my losers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fair point. have been taken away from, um, from me by M&A activity. It's a very, very healthy environment when you see lots of your stocks getting taken yes. uh, out in M&A. So it's not a narrow rally. It's a pretty broad rally. Mm. Uh, even industries where uh, you see uh, weakness, for instance, uh, the semiconductor space. You know, that, that is a, uh, we're going through like a very, very serious down cycle in the semiconductor space. But guess what? Our number one, actually only semiconductor holding was taken out. Um, you know, uh, Which was letter, that? That was called Versum. Yeah. Um, special materials. Uh, there's a company called Integris that's very similar to it. That is um, that that still trades publicly, and I would imagine will be <laughs> taken away at some point.
0: But uh, tell but us. So- you, but tell us about like, is it um, Air Liqu- Liquid or Liquid? Um, that's based over in, I'm so bad with French, uh, but based over in Paris. This is one that you like. The ADRs are up about 12% this year. You've got a bit of a dividend as well. What's the thinking here?
4: Yeah, I mean, Ehrlich Heath, so these are – this is a business I've owned for a long, long time. Um, It's a very long – you know, if you think about what are those types of companies you can own and not have to worry about, like, an Amazon threat, Right. And uh, air, air separation is one of those things. I mean, these, these plants are meant to last 40, 50 years, and there's no technology that's going to depl- displace the separation of air into uh, you know, nitrogen or whatever for the, the refineries down south. So um, it's a very safe business. Um, it's very well, uh, I think it's very conservatively accounted for. Uh, they tend to depreciate things in a much shorter life than the actual life of the assets. And so the, 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 the earnings are very clean the balance sheet's clean, the management's very good. Um, you know, these are all traits that we like at Centerstone, things that you're allowed to own and just like forget about, you know, for, for years. It's Amazon's not going to displace it. You know, these are great businesses to own and just just let them do the work for you.
1: Right. And right.
4: so we hit, that that's Centerstone portfolio. Like that is a collection of businesses that just take the hard work off of your shoulders. You don't have to trade mm-hmm. low turnover strategy, and um, those are the types of businesses that we're looking for.
0: All right. Abe, we've got to leave it on that note. Nice to check in with you uh, on this Monday. Abe Despande, founder and chief investment officer over at Centerstone Investors. Abe joining us uh, today on the phone in New York.
1: Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.